to Project Vox Populi, where the people speak their truth. Welcome to another Veritas Vox Populi, where the people speak their truth, a platform to give a voice to the voiceless. Tonight's witness had a first encounter when he was 14 years old. It involved three other people and a group of non-human entities. The event occurred during the 1986 Burside meteor shower. But even though we will discuss his initial experience, we'll also discuss his post-encounter experience. Greetings from your host, Mel Fabregas. And if you're new to the Veritas family, welcome home. To listen to tonight's full interview and all of our material, just click on the subscribe button. And don't forget to visit the Veritas store for MMS, hemp oil, pure organic sulfur, and much more. And if you want to get in touch with me, want to be a guest on this radio program, have a guest suggestion, or have feedback, just click on the contact button of our website at veritasradio.com. Tonight's Vox Popular witness is Ian Wilson. Following his encounter, Ian started to explore a state known as lucid dreaming in 1987 and has explored consciousness during sleep for over 32 years. Ian is the author of four books titled You Are Dreaming, The Theory of Precognitive Dreams, A Course on Consciousness, and Living a Dream That Lasts a Lifetime. Usually, Vox Populi is reserved for people who are not known or haven't written books. But I believe his books were written as a result of the experience which has not been discussed in the media before. His website is youardreaming.org. Ian Wilson joins us directly from Canada. Hello, Ian, and welcome to Veritas Vox Populi. Hi, Mal. It's very nice to meet you, and thank you so much for this opportunity to have a wonderful discussion. My pleasure. Well, how did I meet you? Well, I haven't met you yet, but it was somebody who referred me to a very known forum in the alternative uh, uh, news world. I read uh, the thread, and I really enjoyed the story, and I thought this would be a good Vox Populi. Let's start from, tell us a little bit more of your background. Well, I'm a graphic designer, a software engineer, and a writer. And as you know, um, you know, I live a very normal, average life like everybody else. But when I go to sleep at night, I have made the choice to participate in the act of dreaming, by bringing my consciousness with me for the ride rather than having it go into a state of unconsciousness. And I have done that persistently for 32 years. Um, and it's just a second life. What else can I say? It's interesting what you just said, because I've always thought we have eight hours of the day where we are working. We have eight hours of the day for those lucky ones to enjoy life, if you will. And eight hours, a third of our lives are spent unconscious sleeping if you're lucky to have eight hours. But what you're saying is that you want to participate in that part that we call unconscious. Let, let's start from there, and then we'll go to your story. Oh, sounds good. Um, as we know, lucid dreaming is an act of becoming fully awake and self-realized in the dream state, just like right now we're lucid and we're self-aware. And by being conscious, that means you're now exposed to your memory, your logic, your awareness, everything that makes you you. Um, making the dream experience a far more realistic and enriching experience. <clears throat> and uh, 
you know, for myself, my when I first had my first lucid dream, it was a no-brainer that this was something very intrinsically enriching. It was fun. So, and it has never stopped being fun. It's just been a goldmine of indescribable experiences. We'll dive into your story right now, but your focus on dreaming, your study, your research, writing these books, did this come as a result of the experience we're about to discuss, or was it just something else? I think the experience definitely helped play into it because it opened my mind up. Um, one of the things that we do suffer a lot from being in this deep immersion of human experience is um, very narrow-minded thinking about the nature of reality and the nature of ourself. Um, and through that vehicle, you don't really grow much. You're going to have sort of looking at the universe through a pinhole. But once you start stepping away from stigmatic belief systems and things that can be barriers, um, the universe opens up to you. And so I just let it. Okay, so let's go back in time. Where did you grow up and how did this experience happen? Well, I am, right now I'm in Penticton and at the time I was also living in Penticton. I was 14. It was August. And uh, of course, the parasite um, meter shower was taking place and my parents thought it'd be fun to take us out to a place called Asuius where there was an observatory place that you could go to um, up on a mountain to have a better look at the skyline and, and see the meteorites. So we drove up there and there was quite a few people there with telescopes and whatnot, amateur astronomers wanting to catch a glimpse of whatever shooting through the sky. And uh, I was with my friend, he was the same age as me, and we were left in the truck as our parents went off to you know, meet other adults and stuff like that. And of course, we're from the truck watching meteorites shoot through the sky and a little bit bored. It wasn't the most exciting thing. But then I did notice something in the sky that instead of moving forward, it moved backwards, which caught my attention. And then it sort of sat there like a star, but it moved in a circular pattern. So it was a very small circle. And I thought um, that was strange. So I pointed it out to my friend and, and he saw it and he agreed. He said, yeah, it's moving. That's different, right? Like we didn't know what to make of it. And then we also noticed that it seemed like it shot something out of it. And, and both of us were like, well, that's very strange. So we wanted then to go and get some confirmation. So we tried to find some adults and we met these two amateur astronomers that were grownups. <clears throat> they had a telescope and we pointed it out just out of our own curiosity. And they were curious too. So they looked through it and agreed that, hey, that's not normal. That's something that you know, seems somewhat odd in the sky. And they hadn't seen something like that before. And I looking through the, the telescope, he said, yeah, that's not that's not a meteorite. That's not a star. That's something, right? And then they too saw something shoot out of it. And we thought what came out of it may have potentially landed in the forest ahead of us. And the grown-up said, well, let's just, just out of curiosity, let's just walk that way. Maybe there's something there. Like, you know, um, and we didn't know any better. And of course, I didn't, at that time, I had no belief in aliens. Uh, I was actually quite a skeptic at that point, which is kind of funny for a young 14-year-old, but uh, it's a story in itself. Needless to say, no belief in anything paranormal, no belief in anything psychic, just your average, you know, this is just it and here we go. So off we go for this walk on this cattle trail towards potentially whatever might be there, if anything at all. And uh, to all of our surprise, um, I walked face to face into a group of about three of these beings that certainly weren't human. And um, one of them reached out and touched me on the shoulder in which uh, I panicked because, you know, this is something that I wasn't prepared for. They weren't prepared for. And I just turned and screamed and ran away as fast as I could back to the truck. And uh, But in that encounter, what was very interesting about these beings is that, you know, they were humanoid. 
but they also seemed to have almost like a cloaking technology because they were see-through, they were translucent, the light was reflect, refracting through them. So when they moved, it was apparent they were there, but I'm sure if they had stood still, you would be almost completely camouflaged. Um, and all four of us did see them. And so we ran back to the camp. And of course, the, the grown-ups were extremely excited about that. And, and, and the guy took my name down and said, well, we should keep in touch. We never did. But, uh, you know, undeniably, it was something all four of us had witnessed. And then, of course, I tried to tell my parents and people, but no one believes, <laughs> as is the way here. So I've, I've kept that story pretty much sealed up for 33 years. And I just thought one day, just it felt like I should share it. You know, who cares if I, people think it's nuts or whatever? I just felt it was just more important to be honest about something that's genuine than just keep it in the dark. I mean, what harm is there in discussing it, right? Do you think that because of what's happening right now, I mean, you turn on the TV and you can't, every few hours, there's some talk about UFOs, about uh, strange aerial phenomena everywhere. Is this happening in Canada too? Well, you know, this is, and, and I, I just, I don't know what to make of it. So last night, you know, in preparation for our discussion, I wanted to go to a nice quiet spot to kind of reflect on some quality topics to talk about. And so I drove off like I often do and sort of off onto a, a logging road and pulled across so I could see the lake. And believe it or not, and it's so strange, there were three low-flying craft that weren't airplanes that just seemed to kind of hover almost like it was observing me. And I'm like, and, and again, I'm thinking, is this another encounter of some sort of weird state? And one of them just quickly disappeared. And then the other two just drifted off. And I saw a plane in the sky with the usual plane light. So I'm thinking, okay, this is really weird because now did I just, am I looking at UFOs here or something? Because it was very bizarre. And that was last night. So I don't know if this conversation is <laughs> Are you serious? for that result. So I'm you've never had a, another experience since 1986. And just the mm -hmm. day before an interview, you have Some, another one. It was very unusual thing. But again, none of, nothing landed, nothing made contact, but it definitely seemed very unusual. And I was like, this is weird. So I just observed it and um, sat there until they left. And I was like, didn't have any binoculars, couldn't get a good look. But it was, you know, as far as I can ra rationalize, it was it was definitely, you know, helicopters. I would have heard them if they were helicopters. They weren't planes. Three of them. <laughs> and by the way, and of just, different sizes, yeah. you are inside Weird. of your car right now conducting this interview in a very nice, natural location Absolutely. in Canada. So I want you to keep your eyes and ears open your surroundings, you never know what could happen when these interviews are taking place. So they had technology to cloak themselves. I mean, our, our military has had that for decades. Imagine what right. these beings that, who knows where they come from, but they're probably thousands, if not millions of years more ahead than we are. <clears throat> I, I think they're about a million years <laughs> from what I understand, yeah. Right. So describe the craft, describe them more than what you just did. Well... From what I can remember, I mean, this was going back 33 years. The, because they were translucent, of course, I didn't get any really strong features. But the um, bodies were thin. The arms were thin. Um, the head was definitely kind of that egg-shaped oval, right? So um, the head was definitely, you know, larger. Um, 
you know, we have a certain anatomy of how our heads fit towards our shoulders. Um, so I think, you know, we're two and a half heads between our, our shoulders, but this would be like maybe just two heads. That's how large the head was in comparison to the, uh, the ratio of their shoulders. So, um, again, definitely humanoid, but not human, nothing I'd ever seen in my life at all. Like I knew at that moment that this was not something that, that, that's, that I could recognize as our normal human earth. Like it, it was definitely different. <laughs> Did you experience but, uh, any missing time? No, I didn't experience anything strange. You know, um, my biggest regret, and this is just my own, I really wish I wasn't so young and immature because I would have loved to have actually not have run. And I always look back and think, what a missed opportunity that was to not to, uh, you know, had I had the courage to stay, perhaps get more information. So I feel only in that it's such a rare experience, like I mean, it's never happened again. So that opportunity to share information or get better information um, was abandoned out of fear. So <clears throat> that's my biggest regret in that encounter wasn't just meeting them, but fleeing. Um, but I was a kid. I mean, 14 years old, what can you really do when you're encountering something like that, but run? <laughs> I mean, 14 or 40 or 80. I yeah. mean, if you encounter something like this that you've never seen before and they touch you, it is our just our natural reaction to, to you know, fight or flight. So you, I guess you, you did the right thing. So many other people who say, oh, no, I just stood here in peace. I knew they were benevolent. And I, I don't know what how I would react if that ever happened to me. But the people that were with you, what kind of conversations did you exchange notes of what they have seen? They had seen, was it different than what you saw? What did they say? No, we all pretty much saw it the same way um, and knew that they were somehow translucent. Uh, they were not normal beings. You know, they seemed non-human but humanoid. Uh, we're all very convinced at that time that they were aliens of some type, but that's just a very easy label to put on it. And I, and I don't believe that they were ghosts or some sort of spirit. Um, they, they definitely fit the, you know, if you get into UFO culture, what other people have described um, as some of the types of beings that they've encountered. Well, but they were not short. They were probably about five foot four, I think would be the height around that height. Well, just today, some of the, uh, I posted on our Facebook page news that, uh, perhaps the U S space force, because some people are reporting snake like or cigar shaped craft flying all over the world. And some people are speculating this could be the U S space force. I mean, who knows? I'm, I'm a firm believer that if it feels like a metallic craft, it's ours. If it's something yeah. that looks maybe biological or just simply lights, could be something else. But in this case, could this be a possibility that it was ours and it was our space force that now they're claiming that it's new? I don't believe for, for a minute. I think we've had it for a very long time. What do you say? I actually, I agree with you on that. Yeah. I think there's been some very clandestine secrets being held by the U.S. government. When I've talked to people like um, that have had military clearance and intelligence um, that have told me that, you know, at the top level, they've, the U.S. government does know and does have access to recovered UFO craft, has been reverse engineering it. This isn't something for them that's an unknown. It's just something for the public that's left unknown and only because you know as you know there's a lot of big lies in our world where there's a lot of information that's being withheld from public consumption and the craft how do you describe the craft you said triangular well, that, that it appeared triangular um 
And again, we're talking not a very long time to look at it because by the time I had noticed it, it had moved to almost a pinpoint or a star size in the sky. So it, but it was definitely a triangular shape when I had first noticed it. And, uh, yeah. And I didn't at that point have any closer look at it. This is why I mentioned the secret space program or the United States Space Force now, but you probably have heard of the TR-3B Aurora craft, have you? Yeah, and that's quite similar in a triangular shape, isn't it? Exactly. Yeah. And uh, have you kept in touch with some of these witnesses, the others? No, um, I did exchange phone numbers with the adults. But again, at at that young age, you know, I told the story to a few people, got ridiculed and stopped. You know, it was like, Mm. oh, this isn't even worth talking about. Um, There was Because it all... So I invoked a lot of fear. It's one of those things you just kind of go like, geez, I don't know what to do with it, right? You don't know what to do with it. So sure. you're like, what do I do with this information? I People just think it's crazy. So you just shut up and uh, not really give it the attention. Um, I always kept kind of a, a bit of an open mind because as I grew older, I, I never forgot that encounter. And I've actually have driven back to that place in hopes of maybe having a re-encounter. Um, so I did that on and off on during around those times and nothing. So, you know, I was kind of hopeful maybe I can have a, that opportunity not to run, but eh, I never, never came around. <laughs> well, not so quick. I mean, what just happened, what just happened last night when that you went, interesting. right? Yeah. So when the bean touched you, what did you feel? Well, that was interesting too, because afterwards I did notice a slight burning sensation on my shoulder that persisted all the way to the time we drove from Asuyas back to Penticton. So it had a physiological effect that was certainly very present on the shoulder, but it wasn't painful. It was just almost like a, a mild burning sensation in that area. So uh, there was definitely some energetic disruption or something that happened there that my body reacted to it. Uh, but there was no marks. There was no redness. There was nothing like that because I definitely looked. Describe the area was, where the encounter happened. Was it a forested area? Yeah, it was forested. We ended up coming up to a clearing off of a cattle trail. So lots of very beautiful pine trees and stuff like that. I mean, it was uh, no clouds in the sky, moonlit night. You know, all we had was that natural light there illuminating it. So in that respect, it was very, you know, very scenic, very beautiful. And where we encountered them was when the cattle trail came out to a bit of a clearing. So, Did this affect you psychologically after it happened? No, I don't think so. I Other than the fear... That was probably the only real, you know, negative impact. But other than that, I started treating it more positively. Um, I started recognizing that this is a very unique and rare opportunity to have encountered something that a lot of people don't know about or wouldn't believe. But when you have a direct experience, you can either accept it or reject it. And I didn't ever really reject it. Uh, It definitely wasn't an hallucination. One of my friends you know, I said, oh, well, it was a group hallucination. I said, well, if that's a group hallucination, then you're just confirming telepathy, right? <laughs> you know, like, you know, for, for, and, you know, there was no alcohol or drugs. I mean, I wasn't, I didn't get into any of that kind of stuff until I got up to about 18 where I started, you know, drinking and smoking a bit of weed here and there with friends at parties. But, you know, so it was at a good time where there were no other influences that would have affected me. And I was a pretty solid person too. Like, I mean, I was really deep into computer programming and physics and science and skepticism and all that kind of stuff. So to have that rattle that world for me was a very good thing. So somebody who was suspect when you were very young, 14, and at that time were very impressionable, but you were, were a skeptic at the time. How did that shatter your paradigm? Well, it showed me that there's a lot more going on than we know. 
And that doesn't surprise me. I mean, the universe is an old universe, and there's a lot of history here that gets lost in just time, right? So, you know, um, it made me feel good about the fact that I don't think there's just humans. I mean, our world is so centered on that human-centric ego that we seem to collectively want to hold on to, like we're special, we're the only ones, and all this kind of stuff. But that's, again, a, you know, those little limited barrier ways of thinking. Um, but it did allow me to then open my mind at least to other things that I would have normally rejected, such as lucid dreaming. So when I came across that Omni magazine written by Dr. Stefan LeBurge, in uh, 1987 called Power Trips Controlling Your Dreams, rather than dismissing it, which I probably would have done, this idea that you could be conscious during sleep, I was very excited in trying it and found out within about 48 hours that, you know, it was the real deal. So I think it did help by not, you know, by shattering that egotistical, oh, I don't believe anything, everything's just, you know, uh, I've been through all that with people where, you know, that closed-minded skepticism. But I've always been an open-minded skeptic. I don't necessarily just because I've had some of these types of experiences just adopt any kind of belief. I, I really believe in critical thinking and in scrutinizing anything, everything. I'm even skeptical of skepticism, so I'm a pretty skeptical person. Yeah, that's where we are here on this platform. We're we're skeptical, but we always have to keep an open mind. I mean, we move right. with the evidence. This amateur astronomer that was present with you there. Did he also witness the beings or just the lights? Oh, absolutely. No, he definitely, definitely witnessed the beings as well. Yeah, we all knew what we saw. What did he say? Uh, he, he, was, he was shocked, for one, I mean, because it's such a big deal. But he was ecstatic. He, he knew it was important. He wanted to go somewhere with it, like, you know, make it public maybe. But uh, like I said, we exchanged numbers, but I never tried to reach out and contact him after that. You know, I had that number scribbled on a piece of paper sitting on my desk by my computer for you know a while until eventually it just disappeared in the cleanup, you know, so. Well, to some people, if you had somebody who touched you and burned you, this could be considered, uh, yeah, at least in the United States, could be considered a, a crime in a way. Did you go to the police, to the authorities, to the military to explain what happened? No, <laughs> no, I just kind of chalked it up as one of those things that maybe talking about it isn't the right thing to do, at least at that time. So, I so just fear kind of ridicule. let it be. Yeah, you know, that's the thing too. I mean, I've been through a lot of different experiences after that, that's very difficult for people to come to terms with because they don't have those types of experiences, which puts me in that fringe realm of, you know, where you sound like you're talking from, you know, some sort of delusional or, you know, but not genuine in what you have to say about those things. But suffice to say, you know, I'm very meticulous about what I take on because uh, one of the things that I appreciate in life is that we all have this lifetime to try to figure it out. So if we're sitting idle, not asking the big questions, we're not going to have the big answers. And this is why I gravitated to your story, because you seem to be a nuts and bolts kind of person. I mean, you were... Computer expert, uh, pretty much somebody who has your head well placed. And I've had people who came to me say, "I want to be on Vox Populi," and I had this experience after I did ayahuasca or or magic mushrooms and things along those lines. Well, a lot of things can happen, and your imagination goes through. DMT gets Absolutely. produced in your brain, but in your case, you were simply a fourteen-year-old curious guy who experienced a per se per se uh, meteors, and other people saw it with you, which makes it even more interesting. 
Yeah, it was a very real experience, and there's no uh, no getting away from that. That happened, so you know, and, and I'm very grateful for it. Now I look back at that, and I feel very fortunate to have had that experience because it's rare, it's unique, it's one of those you can treat it as a blessing or a curse. And I look at it now and say, I was very lucky to have had that experience. Did you see the craft land? No, saw something come down, but came down very fast. Um, like a streak down, like really quick. So not a lot of time to process that information. So, you know. In your opinion, there was nothing you had seen before with our military or any of uh, our present technology that you could say, no. well, this is ours. No. Unless, unless humans have been genetically altered to look like that. Uh, maybe, maybe if it's human, maybe in the future and it was time traveling, I mean, that's really speculative, but you know, could be, I mean, it's really hard to say that that's the, that's the sad part about running away. I didn't get to ask any questions to get some of those better answers. Cause wouldn't that, wouldn't that be nice, right? To actually say, well, yeah. And then I, I had Hold on, excuse my interruption here, but you just said something <laughs> very interesting that it's happening more and more and people are attacking me for discussing it. Recently, we had a professor have come to this program because there's a theory that I've had for a very long time that perhaps what we call aliens or extraterrestrials could be us from the future. I mean, just imagine for a moment if we conquer time travel technology. Mm -hmm. Well, what if we look different in the future because of environmental or who knows what could happen in the future? Yeah. You yeah, just said I mean, it too. Did you listen to my interview or is that something that no, you also think about? I thought about a lot of the different possibilities, I think, over the years as to what that could have been from being some sort of spirit guides, angels, all the different archetypes that people suggest. And just to rule out in my own mind what I think it was, and I do believe that what they were were a genuine species of being that seemed to have technology that we didn't have at that time uh, and that were humanoid, but, you know, not your average human. Um like, you know, what we're used to seeing on a day-to-day -day basis. I mean, if it's true that we have different dimensions and that perhaps our future, our present, our past is all happening simultaneously, mm -hmm. what tells you that we might not conquer the technology that allows you to pierce into those dimensions and go to see our past or our future? Some people say, well, that's... if it happened in the past, you cannot go back to it. But what if it's happening right this moment? What we experienced 50 what? years ago is happening in another dimension. I do think, and again, this comes into, I do think that humans in our biological nature are already experiencing a form of time travel. And that comes through things like deja vu. So people who have a deja vu experience, some people will take that memory and that familiarity of that current experience, but they'll link back the source of why it's familiar. And they'll know why it's familiar because they would have dreamt about it in the same literal format that they're now experiencing it days, weeks, months, even years in the past. And I've had that experience. That was one of the things that came forward from participating in the dream state. And again, something that I wasn't expecting. So this idea of time, when you actually encounter, um, and, and the thing is now, I didn't have one particular dream come true. I've had so many throughout my lifetime that I've uh, made a study of it because it, it's, it's really another real experience in something that I find to be absolutely outstanding and, and incredible. So, you know, they're, they're, the idea of time and being able to breach this barrier of right now um, biologically seems to already exist in us. Now, as consciousness. when did you start with the exploration of dreaming? Well, I was um, 15 at the time. 
And again, it only came about by reading that article written by Dr. Stefan LeBurge. So I had really nothing that introduced me to the concept of being conscious during sleep. And uh, my interests in becoming conscious was I've always sort of saw dreams as a form of entertainment. And I like the realism of dreams because I'm sure everyone that's listening has probably had a dream so real uh, you wouldn't realize it was a dream at all because it's just that detail, that high fidelity until you wake up and it's revealed, oh, that was just a dream. So that quality of realism was a very attractive thing for me. It's, um, I guess I caught on to this idea that, hey, we're kind of born with nature's perfected virtual reality simulator and it's called dreaming. And all it takes is consciousness to play. So I dove into it like an entertainment system. I was, um, you know, I would notice I would watch a movie and the next thing I know I'd be dreaming in that genre of that movie. And it was thrilling. So for sort of fandom and geekdom, you know, I created Star Wars and all sorts of wonderful different um, genres of movies and even video games and even role playing games in my dream state. So I made it very fun and entertaining. But then when I brought my consciousness into it, it took on that whole higher level of realism and it became just like having a second life. It was like, this is like reality number two. So, um, I, I just never walked away from it. It has been an adventure every time I close my eyes. Is this a form of, well, dreaming of course, but is this a form since your consciousness is participating in it? Is this the form of out of body experience in a way? Yeah, I have a few views on that. I mean, um, I look at it as accessing information. Um, uh, when, and what I mean by that is like right now we're in our physical body. So we're accessing physical information. Um, but we're switching into different bands of information when we go to sleep at night and then sort of rendering that data into, you know, an experience. So rather than being dimensional, I look at it more as focused states and information access. So, Tell me, after you read that article, how did it evolve to where you are today? Well, it was the spark that lit the flame. And what really started, at first it was scary. Usually when you encounter something that you don't think is real or true. And I started noticing I was having deja vu linked to past dreams. And the beginning of that, I didn't accept it at all. I mean, my my skeptical mind, my logical mind was all just coincidence. It's so easy to brush anything off as coincidence, right? But Fortunately or unfortunately, it came stronger and in bigger waves. So, um, for example, you know, I, my first one, I had told a friend about the dream because he was involved in it. And I described meeting two women, um, well, teenage girls because we're young, a brunette and a girl with brown hair. And we were by a beach, by a log, and he got together with the one girl, I got together with the other one. And, and uh, he has an endemic memory, so he says, and... Um, Next thing we know, we're at that same spot that I was talking about in the dream, and these girls walk up, same girls from the dream, and and he right away, he's the one who comes up and says, remember that dream you told me about? He says, this is it. You, you dreamt this. And I was like, nah, no way. That's impossible, right? So, you know, uh, I was very dismissive, but unfortunately, it was starting to present itself more and more, and to the point where that elephant in the room couldn't be ignored anymore. And... Uh, so I would have things that I would written down in journals that I could go back and back reference. And yeah, I, I just at a point had to really accept that this was something that was happening. And at that time, there wasn't a lot of people that could relate to it. So I found very few people that would have that experience, unlike today, which is strange, because now it's more like two and three people are having that experience versus back then, maybe one in 10. 
So I think there's been this shift in consciousness because a lot more people are starting to recognize that particular experience in their own direct experience. So, you know, I'm feeling pretty good about that. I've gotten a lot of lot of contact from people over the internet over the years sharing you know hey you know i'm having dreams come true what's going on what does this mean what can i do with it and those kind of things and, and uh, so you know that was kind of the uh, side effect of you know labert never talked about precognition in his articles and i had no idea about what that was so i came about it through the school of hard knocks it just landed in my lap and i started to explore it and in exploring it i started bridging into that particular type of dreaming with lucidity so going from an unconscious precognitive dream to a conscious precognitive dream was a whole next level of that experience isn't that in essence remote viewing you know i i it's very interesting because um when you're in sort of like a literal precognitive dream and you're there consciously while i'm there i look at that whole entire landscape as exactly what it is it's a dream it's highly organized thought shaping out that particular event and then when it comes into your waking life when you've been there consciously all those same attributes all that same knowing of what that is emerges in the runtime experience when it happens here so in a way it's like seeing a rerun for one of the dream but also seeing the dream itself right in front of you while you're awake with your instant, your first encounter, if you will, you had other people with you. At the same time, you probably have heard that the ancient ones reported that they used to have pots where they would dream together at night, call it time travel, I mean, not time travel, uh, have a astral travel, out-of-body experience, but they would all come back and talk about the same things. Have you studied that? I've experienced that. I've shared dreams with people over those 32 years, not as much as I'd like to, and that's largely because a lot of people are dream illiterate and don't participate in their dreams. But in the rare cases in my life, um, when I've shared dreams that I've had with certain people in it, they've remembered being in that same dream, same conversation pieces, same dream symbolisms. I've also been around people who, in one particular case, it was three people I worked with, and they were all girls, and they uh, started talking, and one started talking about her dream, and they all realized that they all had that same exact dream. And what was great about it was dream symbolism is very unique, so they were describing the exact same details that were only something that would happen in a dream environment, the symbolisms that aren't normal to our waking life. So, yeah, that's something that is another part of that inner draw for dreaming is there's there's some sort of interconnection there that we're missing out on if we're not diving deep into it what do you think precipitates this the can we call it synchronicity that multiple people can experience the same dream or precognition mm -hmm. in a way yeah well that's the thing there's there's so much depth to us you know um my view of it sort of well there's a lot there to say about it um I think that we all came from, you know, uh, a singularity, if we go into cosmology, but the missing ingredient in cosmology is that the singularity was self-aware. And I think that the singularity evolved a recursive feedback system for itself where it could think and experience ideas that would form dreams and started to immerse itself into these dreams to make them more complex and more enriching it needed to divide itself up into smaller and smaller components to take on each actor and suddenly boom it created this massive geometrical manifold of reality and has expressed itself in 
everything so that we all came from oneness. So we're all interconnected and we're all entangled and we're all part of a whole. So I think that's why that emerges that way because, you know, we're all part of the same thing, a larger entity, if we want to call it that, the universe. Do you think that with the advent of your technology, I remember back when in the 80s when I had my Commodore computer and I was accessing BBS You probably don't remember what the bulletin boards were back then. Oh, I do. Yeah. And you remember how you felt connected. For the first time in my life, I felt, wow, I'm connecting with people all over the world. And, and then come the internet in the 90s. Hardly anybody used it. And then in 2000s, and here we are today. Everybody That's uses right. it. We have this new web, uh, as the, the uh, Hopi say, one day in the future, we're going to be connected with a web around the world. And I think that's exactly what they were referring to. Now that our brain is pretty much connected everywhere, do you think that this mind has turned into a hive mind? And perhaps this is why we are accessing this multiple consciousness grid around the world at the same time? Yeah, I think I think the veil is kind of lifting. I think that we've been under deep immersion for a very long time. And now what's happening is that the veil is starting to lift a bit. So people are starting to access higher consciousness or greater insight into their relationship with reality and their relationship with each other. So a lot more of these synchronicities and these things which show that we do have this relationship, not just with reality, but with each other, um, does seem to start to percolate up a bit in that. Because, um, you know, there's, there's, there's so much to us that, you know, um, people can't quite grasp at yet that resides in the unconscious. You know, we go through these altered states of consciousness for a reason. Everything dreams for a reason, but not a lot of people are pioneering or venturing into that to fully grasp that relationship. And I'm doing the best that I can because it's been such an enriching part of my life, but uh, I wouldn't have these perspectives on these particular topics if I didn't at least jump into those waters. So, but yeah, I think, uh, I think there's a lot more, consciousness growth that we're seeing evolutionary growth for sure that's gonna you know start connecting us into even deeper and deeper parts of ourselves sometimes when i conduct to, yeah. sometimes when i conduct these interviews I'm, i'm not prepared with with data because this is new information that you're dis disseminating but you know i have thoughts that in my mind that i want to convey for example i remember studying years ago uh, monkeys around the world where you see an island in the middle of the pacific where one monkey So another one cleaning a coconut or what have you, and all of a sudden other islands had monkeys that were doing exactly the same thing after that happened. You probably have heard of that story, right? Where they started doing certain things, or one saw a monkey get into a piece of wood and just swim to another island, and other islands far away started doing the same thing at the same time, almost as if their minds were connected, which leads me to the thought of the ancient ones, you know, 10,000 years ago when all these pyramids started popping up all over the world at the same time. Well, we're told that humanity was not connected, that we didn't have the ability to go from, you know, this continent to the other one. But how did these monuments get erected at the same time with similar architecture? Do you think that at one point there was a grid on this planet where our mind was connected and we didn't even have any language, but telepathy was one. I don't know why I'm saying this, but because you study dreams and consciousness, perhaps you have a different perspective. Sure. Well, I mean, Carl Jung kind of tapped into that 
And largely because when he was interviewing people about dreams, he would notice that a person on the other part of the planet would have the same dream archetypes. The collective um, unconscious. That, that, uh, exactly, that other people would have. And he thought right away, well, this is strange because if dreams are subjective, entirely subjective, then then you know why would other people have such strong archetypes coming through in, in a variety of different cultures and people, right? So it alluded to him that this idea is that there's this collective unconscious that is there and accessed during dreaming. Very important. Now, you've written a few books on dreaming. Obviously, mm -hmm. you've had a lot of experience in doing this. My question would be, how do you, what is the catalyst? How do you create your own presence, conscious presence in a dream? Because usually most people are spectators, but you seem to That's be right. active. Well, it's a, it's a skill like going and learning to play the piano. You got to start somewhere with it. And for me, it really came about um, by allowing myself to focus on the transition between waking and sleep. And rather than allowing my focus to be turned off, which is what most of us will succumb to, um, I allowed myself to progress through that transition and all of its stages until the dream became fully realized. Um, and that happens as an act when the body, you have to go through the body falling asleep, sometimes go through sleeper's paralysis. Um, but, you know, there is that participating by remaining conscious and focused on the onset of the dream. And that was really kind of like the big thing that would take it forward, right? As long as I was remaining focused on that shift and allowing myself to move in that direction consciously without the fear, without pushing it away, um, it would just then come and emerge as once the body turned into, you know, a nice little sleep moment. And, uh, at that point you just step right into the dream and you're there consciously and participating in it. So, you know, mission accomplished. <laughs> Why don't you so give us some really examples? Uh, give us some examples, some of the steps that you learned, as you say, it's like a muscle uh, or, or playing the piano. I don't know if you've heard, I don't mean to deviate, but just another thought came to mind. You probably heard of the term neuroplasticity. Have you heard that? Yes, I have. And I've studied it in the past few years. I find it fascinating. And I believe it was two years ago where I found two scientists, two young scientists in Silicon Valley who are working on a way not to download your consciousness. But for example, let's say that you want to play the piano or, or be a fighter pilot or just create a, a guitar player, whatever. They bring a fighter pilot, they bring a, a guitar virtuoso or a musician, and they get their I'm going to use the, the word consciousness just for sake of argument, simplicity. And they download it into our computer. And then they bring somebody like you or I, let's say that we're not musicians, but we want to play. They connect that to us. And it's not like we're getting their, their strengths or virtues, but all of a sudden it opens a way that you can learn to play the piano a hundred times, about 50 times faster than anybody else. And it makes your brain's, Uh, neuro pathways open up to those things. Do you think there's a correlation between what you're learning and developing your brain muscle, if you want to call it that way, and these individuals that are doing this? Yeah, I mean, some of the things I write about is cognitive atrophy with dreaming. And what I mean by that is that various uh, things that we take for granted here, such as memory, perception, and awareness, go through a degrading state because of the altered states that happen in the brain brain starts to change its brain function so we have a different 
way that our brains record memory in sleep. It doesn't happen. Um, it happens in the temporal lobes and our short-term memory banks. Uh, information is flowing out from the hippocampus, which is a long-term memory. It's not flowing in. So a lot of people are experiencing dreams in a way where they'll wake up and they just flood away. They just flutter away quickly because it's short-term memory is where it's taking place. The other thing is perception, right? How we see color, taste, touch, all those things can go to a variety of different low grades so that when you're in the dream, you may not see color or you may not hear, um, you may not taste, touch, or smell. So you need to work on those things as well um, to get that full sensory feedback from a dream, which you can. I mean, I taste, touch, smell, all those kind of things in a dream, no problem. Uh, and then the third thing is just awareness, and that's your level of self-awareness. So it can be in a very dim, unconscious state to a very vibrant lucid state. So those are kind of the three main things that I write about in my book is cognitive atrophy and addressing those three particular areas that I see as being affected by the transition into altered states and, you know, working with those three particular areas to help increase the quality of the dream state. And it, and it can be done because it's, again, you're doing it by focusing on it. You're doing it by being aware of it and encouraging yourself to become better at it each time, you know, to be a better dream artist, so to speak. So people may be saying right now, Mel, you started Vox Populi talking about a UFO encounter that now turns into dreams. But it's okay, folks, because I think, and you've confirmed that to me, that perhaps that event that happened to you led you, was the catalyst to studying this. And sometimes things happen. A dream is what caused this very radio program to materialize. It was the day before I made my first phone call that something told me, take action. And of course, you ignore a lot of the messages. How many people dream something and the next morning they don't write it down? Because, you know, after a while, you forget it. I, I don't know. I'd like to explore that with you. But is it important to have a notepad next to your bed so that when you wake up in the morning, you write down what you dreamt? Because otherwise you forget it. Yeah, it's nice to have, largely because, you know, our dreams is like, an, for me, it's like an art form. It's like writing a story or writing. You're, you're now becoming your own Hollywood producer and your own artist. And the narratives and the experiences that come from there, you know, people pay big money for entertainment. They'll go to movies, they'll buy video games, and they'll give it all their attention, all their fandom. But when it comes to their own dreams, it's kind of funny. It's like because of this attitude we have with them, it's like, well, it's just a dream. And missing out on all the details, all the stories, the plots, the characters. And for me, it's like, you know, I go back into my dream journal, I read some of my dreams. They're fantastic stories. They're, they're great memories of you know, engaging that particular part of ourselves and just going along for that ride. Um, you know, for me, it's like uh, better, the best form of virtual reality entertainment that I can think of. I mean, I tried VR, Oculus Rift, with my friends. I said, you know, this is kind of close to what it's like when you're lucid dreaming and, you know, where you're, you're now immersed in this visual format that's different than your waking reality, but nowhere near the high fidelity. The graphics are nowhere near close. You know, there's no taste, touch, smell. Sure, there's sound and vision, but it's missing those other three nice characteristics, which makes it a much more enjoyable experience. So, you know, coming at it from this art form of experiential entertainment, um, dreams are a hell of a lot of fun. They, they are a really good source of experience. And not only that, they touch you into some really profound experiences that can come from such as shared dreaming or seeing the future in your dreams, or even coming out of, um, states of amnesia that people don't realize they have where you can get into forgotten knowledge of yourself that your dream will then remind you of and you'll then know so it can present knowledge uh, so very profound knowledge can come through that experience if you are willing to take the dive 
before I started this radio program over 10 years ago, if anybody talked about all this, I would just think, oh gosh, you know, please. You know, I was very skeptical back then. But some, so many things have happened to me that I cannot explain, including dreaming and giving me answers that now I don't discount anything, anything at all, Ian. I'm not saying that I'm just opening my mind to let my brain fall out, but I just do, do not close my mind to any possibilities when it comes to health, when it comes to spirit guides, which I used to think, oh, geez, please don't give me the mumbo jumbo. But I've heard people say that the dream world is the place where you meet your spirit guide and you interact and get the answers that you need because it's almost as if you're operating in a different dimension. Your take on that. Well, what? Yeah, what happens is that you know, I, I look at, we suffer from three major things that need to be addressed in our lives if we want to be evolving ourselves consciously. And the first thing is amnesia, and I'll get into that. The second thing, which is right now happening to everyone, is immersion. So immersion is, you know, we're here in this reality, and this is all we know. We don't know anything else because this is what we're used to. It's like a fish in a fishbowl. I call it the fishbowl paradox, where a fish swims around a fishbowl, and that fishbowl is its world, and that's all it knows. And something comes out from outside of its world and say, hey, look, man, there's more to reality than your fishbowl. And the fish doesn't want to believe it because, nope, I know this fishbowl. This is reality. This is it. So we suffer from immersion while we're here. And breaking the immersion, coming out of that immersion, being conscious in your dream state, now you can have access to other information that's not your waking life, but still very valid, very real experience. And it can show you that there's a lot more to reality in yourself than just the waking world. And so that immersion then is not 100%. It starts becoming 90%, 80%. And I'm more around the 40 60% with that relationship. So breaking the immersion is very important. And the last thing is belief in the place of knowledge. And that's a pitfall that we all fall into. You know, if you're looking for truth, it's very easy to gravitate to a belief system. And, you know, that belief system can be very dangerous. It can become a prison for your mind, not something that's going to liberate you. So, you know, dismissing belief and going straight for knowledge is really an important part of that process too. But the amnesia and coming back to that, um, that's kind of post-human coming into the human experience existing post-human um, and that's something that when you go into these different states of consciousness you can start to remember that hey this is probably the first time you've rolled a character in the story of life and became a human so there's a lot of um, larger and deeper threads of you know a deeper reality that we're a part of that you know we didn't just start here as a human that's for sure that word you use I don't like too much believe because if you parse the word you have two words, B, which means to live, and L-I-E, lie, B, live. You see what I mean? Yeah, and that's why it's important to have knowing, right? Because right. without knowing, Gnosis. then you're stuck in in, in belief. And uh, the only way that I know knowledge comes in its most powerful form is through direct experience, especially for this kind of stuff. You know, to experience it, to know it, not believe it. Because once you experience it, you'll start to understand it. You'll start to have knowledge. And that's a much better platform to be on than being stuck in sort of some of the pitfalls of belief. Even going back to your first experience with the, let's call it an alien or extraterrestrial or who, whoever that was, you know, many people have reported that to me and they say a lot of people doubt me and they don't believe me. But guess what? I don't care because I know what I saw, like James Fox says in, his, right. in one of his DVDs. I know what I saw. It's my direct experience. I don't need you to believe me. This is just what I went through. And this is why I can never, never discount anybody that tells me a story. Do I believe it? No, because I don't use the word belief. Do I know it? No. But I like to listen to what you have to say because it's 
what the knowledge that you give me. And I'm trying to find out why do you think you were there in that specific moment in 1986 watching that meteor shower surrounded by other people who who knows, maybe they'll listen to this program in the future and say, my goodness, there is Ian. I haven't seen him in 33 years and I wish I could tell the story. Maybe they have a different perspective too. That's right. You never know. <laughs> that would be interesting for sure. But, you know, the thing is, is there's just such a richness to what we are. Like reality is such a miracle. We're so lucky to have this. And there's so many mysteries that are there. But I do believe, you know, we are not just a physical body for sure. We're a consciousness. We're a self-awareness that has access to other focus states. And right now I can say we're in a focus state, in our waking focus state. And dreaming is an opportunity to shift your focus state to other focus states and gain access to information that can be very intrinsic and valuable and knowledgeable. Um, and, and here's some cool stuff, again, because this is experience space, which I think you would like because it dabbles into some more paranormal weirdness. But these are very genuine experiences that came as a result of exploring precognition consciously. It took no, me hold, about hold eight right years. There, excuse my interruption. <laughs> Let's leave that for part two because we're coming to the end okay. of this. Second, and then... Leave that little cliffhanger there. I always want to explore what you just said. I also want to dissect dreaming. I have a lot of questions about dreaming that I haven't asked before in other dream episodes that I've conducted, but you have written a few books and I want to discuss that. How can people learn more about your work, Ian? Um, well, just go to my website. There's a lot of material there. Um, you know, uh, I, I just recently, because I was going to have a person that I was going to work with and we were going to kind of get into a joint project, I uh, put my books on Amazon. They used to be free on my site for 20 years, but um, because we were going to go into a business model, I put them up on Amazon. So right now they're on Amazon, but I might move them back onto my website again just for access. So, you know, I've never charged for this kind of stuff. It's just the way I roll. But um, all the information is going to be there. There's a... When we, I have a video where I talk about a lot of this stuff, except for minus the encounter. You're the very first person to have interviewed me to share in that story because it's not a story I've been interviewed before on the dream stuff, but I've never brought that particular story up. Um, so, you know, that was sort of a coming out after 33 years for sure on that particular experience. We're glad you chose this platform to do it. Your website is youardreaming.org, correct? That's correct. Excellent. Folks, well, don't go anywhere. We have much more to discuss with Ian Wilson on this Vox Populi episode. This is Mel Fabricus, and you are listening to Veritas. See you in the members section. Thank you for listening to the first part of this very important Veritas interview. To listen to the rest and all of our material, proceed to the members section or subscribe at veritasradio.com. Don't forget to visit the Veritas store for MMS, hemp oil, pure organic sulfur, and other great products. Thank you.